Hello, and welcome to a special series of podcasts from the Hoover Institution accompanying the launch of our new immigration journal, Peregrine. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and joining us today is someone who will be very familiar to many of our listeners, especially if you've also heard him on his own Hoover podcast series, The Libertarian, Professor Richard Epstein, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as professor of law at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, thanks for being with us. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Yes, uh, and Peregrine, of course, refers to outlanders. It comes, I think, from the Roman or the Latin. And the and the topic under discussion in this first issue of Peregrine is a big one, although one that often gets overlooked in debates about immigration, which is this basic question, what is the right amount of legal immigration? And you have a provocative response to that, Richard, which is to say that's asking the wrong question. It's It's not the right way to even start thinking about this issue. Why not? Well, it's a kind of a difficult argument, but let's assume that we started off life as natural lawyers. And that means that there's no state and pretty much everybody can go wherever he wants so long as he goes on the property of somebody who invites him or takes over unowned property. Uh, So there are no nation boundaries with respect to the state of nature and anyone can go anywhere. Now, once you put territories up, uh, life becomes a lot more complicated uh, because what happens is those territories have to have boundaries. Those boundaries have to be enforced to protect you from invasion. And in fact, you have to tax your own local citizens in order to support the standard functions associated with running governance, which includes keeping outsiders out. Uh, So now that you've put this thing up, the first question you could ask is, well, can we have a system of free immigration after we have a system of organized government? And the strong answer to that question is you cannot do that. Um, You could not, for example, in the United States to say anybody who wishes to abide by the law of the land in this country may come in. And now you have 400 million Chinese, uh, for example, who would like to get immediate entrance into the United States as of right. Uh, They could come. They could create a majority institution. And once they have that, uh, what can happen is they can simply change the Constitution. Uh, This applies everywhere. So there is always a little bit of xenophobia associated with immigration. Well, the next question is, uh, do you want to make this Fortress America or Fortress any other country? And that, of course, turns out to be a complete mistake because there are many situations where letting immigrants come into the United States is surely a win-win proposition. Uh, That gets you to the third question. Well, who are those individuals that you want to let in and how are you going to decide that? And there are two methods that you could kind of think of. One of them, which we tend to use in the United States today, is a form of centralized planning where we sort of figure out the number of visas that we want to give in this category, for example, skilled technical workers, the number of visas we want to give to allow families to reunite and so on down the line, and then you allow people to get on a queue and to recover. And the great danger of that particular system is you have no idea as to whether the numbers you've chosen are correct or whether the people who are at the head of the queue whom you want most. So the late Gary Becker, uh, my friend, and my other friend Ed Lazare have been leaders in a movement which has started to say, no, the way you really want to do this is to institute some kind of a bid system uh, which will allow people to uh, compete for places upon ability to show that they are self-sufficient once they arrive. And then you can get the revelations of a price system and a market system to help you pick the people whom you want to get into a country most. And in fact, I think this is good from a worldwide perspective because if everybody does this, then the nations who are losing these people now have a competitive incentive to make life a little bit more attractive back home uh, so that the people in whom they've invested in education and upbringing will not flee the coop when they reach their maturity. 
So Richard, as you know, there's a lot of people who would respond to this prompt the same way that you did to say it's asking the wrong question, but for different reasons. They'd say, why, why are we even bothering with this? If you've got a, a labor market as depressed as ours, if you have a relative lack of economic opportunity, why put even more pressure on that by – increasing the supply in the labor markets through immigration. How do you respond to that line of thinking? Well, the first thing is either you take the immigrants in, particularly at the skilled level, or the facilities will go out. One of the things that's already happening is that high-tech companies who find that they can't get their share of these sophisticated visas are starting to build plants in India. They're starting to build them in Canada. They're starting to build them in any place where the pool of labor starts to go. So it's not as though what happens is when you keep the foreigners out, there's a huge supply of domestic workers who could take their positions, it turns out that there is now a systematic shortage and capital being mobile, it will find itself invested somewhere else. If the United States insists that we now have to repatriate this capital in some form or another to America after we hire these people, what's going to happen is those companies will be spun off and they'll now be independent companies in Canada and independent companies in India who will take these labors. So it's extremely short-sighted to think that the only thing that happens when you put these restrictions on is that American workers take jobs that would otherwise go to foreigners. The second point is it's an absolute mistake under these circumstances to assume that the immigrants who come into this country are just going to take jobs as opposed to create them. And you can go down a long list of immigrants. I keep on thinking of Bose Radio as an example. Mr. Bose is an immigrant. Um, he probably got a job, but he sets up this huge business in which all of a sudden radios and receivers are now made by somebody with expertise acquired overseas which give all sorts of jobs to future citizens and to future immigrants and to future everybody in the years to come. So uh, if in fact these immigrants tend to be younger, they tend to be more dynamic, the likelihood that they will improve the average capital quality of investments in the United States is very, very great. So that when you take into account the indirect effects of their job creation abilities, it turns out there are more opportunities for America than less. But to put it in another way, generally speaking, you want to create stagnation in the domestic market. What you do is you put barriers to entry on that market from domestic firms. And the same thing happens when you put barriers to entry to foreigners coming into this country. So is it fair to say if you didn't reach the, the perfect equilibrium as far as how many immigrants you wanted to allow in, that the greater danger would be falling short of it? The greater danger would be too little immigration instead of too much? Well, it depends on where you set the titles, but certainly I think that's the case with respect to the sophisticated people. These are not individuals who are likely to have track records of criminality. They're not smuggling themselves over a border. They're going to be highly educated individuals. They will be forced to pay taxes on the same terms and conditions as everybody else in this country. And in fact, with high incomes, they will generate uh, a demand for various kinds of goods and services that are created by domestic people and foreign people alike. Uh, the whole point about this is that the gains from trade in both human capital on the one hand and goods and services on the other is something which should, to the extent possible, take place over international dynamics. And so the kind of jingoism which says, you know, we've got to keep strong protective barriers on goods coming into this country is, in fact, a great mistake. And uh, labor is much more complicated than goods because, you know, People who come into this country can demand education, they can vote, they can commit various kinds of criminal offenses in 
in some case. Uh, so that's why you can't open the borders up entirely uh, to labor in the way in which you can to capital or to goods coming in the country. But surely if you're trying to figure out which way you want to move this thing, uh, the clear perceived shortages with respect to uh, slots for skilled immigrants coming into the United States to add to our productivity in a time of stagnation is something that we should welcome, not fear. Final question that I'll ask you because you've, you've raised it a couple times so far in the conversation when we talked about the scenario if you had open borders and you could get this deluge of, <laughs> of, pe- of people from outside, different cultures. And one of the areas where classical liberals, classical like yourself, one of the areas where classical liberalism is fairly distinct from conservatism and, and here I'm in conservatism not necessarily as we tend to use it now in reference to the conservative political movement but in the traditional sense as a, a preservationist movement, as an yes. impulse towards putting the brakes on social change, is that classical liberalism tends to be a little bit more comfortable with social dynamism. And with, and with immigration, one of the areas where you really see that tension play out is in arguments over assimilation because there's a school of thought that says, hang on, you, you can't just think about this in economic terms. You're bringing in people with different historical traditions, different cultural mores, different languages, and you at some point run the risk of fundamentally changing American culture and changing it in a way that you can't undo. Um, how should concerns like that be factored into thinking about immigration? Well, the first thing you have to ask is whether or not the change is going to be for the better or for the worse. And if the immigrants whom you're bringing in turn out to have great pride in education and so forth and a real sense of civil participation and virtue, if they're people who have experienced what it is to live under a Soviet type of oppression, I would regard those as assets in making this country have a better climate, more tolerant climate than it might have had if the people whom you're admitting are are essentially potential tyrants of one kind or another. And I think you, through this bid system at least, you have a pretty good chance of selecting the kinds of people you want because it's not very likely that people who are high in economic and social skills in the workplace are going to turn out to be derelict citizens in the way in which they behave. Uh, So my view about it is I would treat this as an opportunity. I mean, what I keep trying to remind myself and other people is I was born on April 17th, 19. Of 43, and my ancestors came from the Russian Polish border, and the Warsaw Ghetto uprising began two days after I was born. And it was only the immigration of my grandparents which saved my skin and everybody else's. And within one generation, it turned out that, you know, on both sides of the family, we had highly skilled people. And this has been replicated time and time again with other immigrant groups who turn out to be extremely high on not only on economic productivity, but also on sort of shared political sociability. I think it's a terrible mistake to assume that people who know how to make money are people who can refuse to spend it in an intelligent and responsible fashion. That's never been the history. Generally, if people are good in their economic relationships, they'll be pretty good in their social relationships, and they'll have enough wealth and enough decency that they will try to contribute to the support of common culture on the one hand and to various kinds of charitable institutions on the other. Our guest has been Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.